start. All right, and welcome back. And tonight our guest is Mike McDermott. Mr. McDermott, thank you for being with us. So why don't you start off with telling us a little about yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm a 1983 graduate of Siena College. Uh, took some time off after college, then went to law school. Um, went to Albany Law School. Uh, I currently practice at a law firm in downtown Albany by the name of O'Connell and Aronowitz, and I do criminal defense work. Okay. Um, so I've been practicing about uh, 30 years, and um, I was a prosecutor for um, about 13, 14 years, and um, then I've been doing uh, civil work and criminal defense since then. Okay. So tonight we're here to talk about the Fifth Amendment, in particular self-incrimination. Could you, for those who aren't as familiar with self-incrimination self as others are, could you fill in the audience on what that is? Sure. So the, um, the right against self-incrimination, as it's commonly referred to, is part of the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution. And the Fifth Amendment covers uh, a number of things. Some things are civil, some things are criminal. And uh, as it pertains to self-incrimination, the text of the amendment says that no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. So that's the actual okay. language of the amendment. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been a very, very hot topic of controversy uh, and litigated in courts, not only in the federal level, but in the state level uh, for a long time. And it, it remains one of the most... Uh, litigated aspects of the criminal law that we have. Okay, so why do we have this then? Sure, well, the as again, we call it the right against self-incrimination, but that's not the language in the in the amendment, but the idea that a person should not be compelled to give evidence against themselves is an old old concept. Um, you know, it it goes back uh, millennia. Um, and with respect to the uh, United States law, you know, we derive a lot of our principles from the uh, English common law. Right? Okay. And uh, back in England in the 14th to the 16th centuries, uh, there was a, um, a thing known as the Star Chamber. Okay. It was yeah. uh, actually a, a room in uh, the uh, royal palace where the king and the privy council would meet and they would uh, conduct inquisitions. They would force people to take an oath. It was called an ex officio oath. And then they'd be compelled to give evidence against themselves. And it was, you know, primarily a means of government coercion against, uh, you know, rebels and renegades and people who were out of favor with the uh, with the king uh, and led to abuse, obviously. So the idea that, uh, you know, that should be prohibited um, led to, uh, they called it the uh, act of uh, habeas corpus in England, to prohibit the Star Chamber and to cement the idea that a person cannot be compelled to give evidence against themselves. So that was imported from the English common law into the U.S. Constitution. But exactly what that means is still being hammered out. I mean, what the okay. actual parameters of the right are continue to be litigated to this day. All right. I mean, with some people that I've talked with about this, it kind of seems to them that it's kind of just a way for somebody who's done something to protect themselves. Well, it clearly is. I mean, it's, it's, it's a right um, that basically prohibits the government from using compelled testimony from the mouth of somebody who's accused. Because, you know, if you, if you look around the world, there are generally two kinds of criminal justice systems. One is the inquisitorial and one is the accusatorial. 
Okay. And the inquisitorial is is the kind where, you know, you torture people, you coerce people to basically confess, and that's the end of the case. The accusatory uh, model is the model that we have where the burden of proof is on the government to prove somebody's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt by means of evidence that's been obtained uh, lawfully and not coerced from the person accused of the crime. So it, it, it definitely is a prophylactic uh, measure designed to you know, protect people from coercion uh, in the uh, conduct of criminal investigations. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something like I know most people, unless they see it happen, don't really think that we have it. Like I can think of just like one big example of it, especially because it was so shocking. It was such a high profile case, although it was before I was born, was the O.J. Simpson trial when Mark Furman pleaded the fifth. Right. And it's also especially shocking, shocking because you don't really see police officers plead the fifth. Right. Right. So, you know, the whole idea of the Fifth Amendment, as it's been, you know, defined by the courts and refined by the courts um, is that a person cannot be compelled to give evidence that would incriminate them, whether or not the the proceeding that they're giving evidence in is a civil proceeding, an administrative proceeding, or a criminal proceeding. So anyone, if they're being compelled to give testimony and they feel that if they, you know, answer truthfully, it would tend to put their, you know, life or liberty in jeopardy in some either the current proceeding or a future proceeding, they're allowed to refuse to answer on grounds of the Fifth Amendment. Okay. Is there any, like, case where you can't use the Fifth? So, you know, yes. And um, the courts have said that the, the Fifth Amendment is basically, again, a prophylactic so that you can refuse to put your life or liberty in jeopardy. But... If your life and liberty are not in jeopardy, then you can't refuse to answer the question. And that comes into play if a prosecutor wants information from you and you say, listen, I'm not going to answer that question because it's going to incriminate me and I have a constitutional right not to give you evidence from my own lips. The prosecutor can then either independently or through either a grand jury or a court grant that witness immunity, which basically means that you know, you no longer have to fear being prosecuted for what you're being asked about. Under those circumstances, the witness has to answer or face a possible contempt of court where they can be incarcerated until they answer the question because now the Fifth Amendment no longer applies because they've been granted immunity by the government. So basically to get out of that, they have to be granted something like immunity then? Correct, correct. And there's a, there's a case uh, called Castigar, which again stands for the proposition that the government can compel you to answer questions even if you assert the fifth, but they've got to give you immunity. So basically, they must want what you have to say so badly that they're willing to forego the opportunity to prosecute for you. And that happens quite a bit, you know, um, and, you know, in in New York, um, when a witness testifies in front of a grand jury, if they're summoned to testify in front of a grand jury, by operation of law, that witness gets what's called transactional immunity, which means they can never be prosecuted for anything that they're giving testimony about. And it, it's a, it's a um, you know, it's like a balancing test. I mean, if we want to use the grand jury to be able to investigate crimes and we want truthful and complete testimony from witnesses, then we've got to give those witnesses immunity, you know. So obviously, you know, prosecutors don't call a defendant before the grand jury 
and give them immunity. So if a defendant testifies in front of a grand jury, they have to waive their immunity before they're allowed to testify. Oh, okay. Yeah, because sometimes you see, like, coming off that with giving them things, you kind of see this kind of a way that they have a small fist, so to speak, where it's kind of like a grand scheme of things, kind of take it with just kind of like the RICO trials in the 80s with Rudy Giuliani, Michael Cherikov, and the mob, mob and um, or even the, the recent Russia investigation where they have somebody and they kind of grant them immunity of some sense because there's a bigger fish they want to get. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a classic... Um you know, uh, tactic of a prosecutor, you know, you start with kind of low level people who have some information that you want and they may be, you know, guilty of crimes of their own, but it's not the major crime that you're investigating. So you're willing to, as you said, let the little fish go Yeah. in exchange for the information that they have, um, that would otherwise incriminate them and you, you give them immunity. So now you get their information they're no longer at jeopardy of being charged with a crime, so they win, the government wins. I mean, it's it's a way a lot of prosecutions are built. Yeah, because with the mob case, it was uh, Sammy Bolgervano, I think, that they got to get to go after Gotti. Yeah. And there were a bunch of other people they got to go after, like Carmine Persico, who was the last living boss until his past year of the five families. And like even with the Russia case, it was more like, I think it was Mike Flynn they gave a better deal to, or was it another person who they gave a better deal for? And then Manafort's the one who's got, like, the, the biggest, like, trial sentence. Sure. I mean, you, you mean as you said, I mean, I, I can't comment on the specifics of a particular case, but with yeah. mob-related cases, I mean, a lot of times they'll grant immunity to the underlying, you know, hitmen to get, you know, the person who ordered yeah. the hit. And sometimes it's, you know, it's making a deal and not necessarily immunity so that, you know, they'll make a deal that in exchange for your testimony, we will only charge you with X crime when we could charge you with Y. Yeah. Or you'll only do, you know, 10 years instead of a life sentence. So sometimes there are deals cut in exchange for testimony that are less than immunity. But, you know, it, it often happens that a witness will outright get immunity so they don't get prosecuted for anything. Is there a certain type of crime that the Fifth Amendment is usually used the most for? No, I mean, Fifth Amendment runs a gamut. I mean, it can be anything from tax fraud to uh, larceny to homicide. I mean, any time, you know, the information that's being asked of you um, could put you in legal jeopardy, either a little or a lot, you know, criminal legal jeopardy, you're entitled not to not to answer it. OK, but but and again, the, you know, this the Fifth Amendment has been subject to a lot of litigation and, and an important case in this area um, is a case that actually uh, Alan Dershowitz wrote a book about. Um, really? That case is from this area? It's, an, it's from the area of Fifth Amendment jurisprudence, yeah. It's uh, oh. Chavez versus Martinez in 2003, and um, Dershowitz wrote a book called Is There a Right to Remain Silent? And it's all, oh, okay. about, it's all about this case. What happened in that case is it was out of California, and there was a guy by the name of Chavez who was stopped by the police. They were investigating, I don't know if it was a burglary or a robbery, and he yeah. was in the area, and I think he fit a description. So the police approached Chavez. There was a uh, fight that broke out, and um, it was alleged that Chavez took the gun of one of the police officers and that another police officer then shot Chavez. Okay. okay. Shot him in the face. So Chavez is brought from the scene to a hospital. You know, he's... Um, in danger of dying, and there's a police officer by the name of Martinez who goes with him to the hospital and is questioning him at the hospital. 
and it's actually recorded. And uh, Chavez thinks he's going to die, tells the police officer, I don't want to talk to you. Leave me alone. The doctors need to treat me. I'm going to die. And Martinez, like, repeatedly is asking him, you know, did you take the officer's gun? You know, did you point the gun at the officer? And Chavez repeatedly said he didn't want to talk to him. Get away. I'm dying. Leave me alone. Let the doctors do their job. And Martinez continued to question him. So uh, Chavez survived. Okay, he was rendered blind and paralyzed as a result of being shot, but he survived. And he brought a lawsuit against the police department, particularly Martinez, who was the officer who was questioning him, alleging that Martinez violated his Fifth Amendment right. Okay, and he brought what's called a 1983 action, which is an action for a violation of your civil liberties. Okay. Okay. So the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the case was. You know, was this a violation of the Fifth Amendment? Okay, um, and the majority decision was written by Judge Thomas, and Judge Thomas, uh, Clarence Thomas, said no, this is not uh, a violation of the Fifth Amendment because the Fifth Amendment is again, as I said, a prophylactic, like a, a precautionary measure to prevent somebody from uh, having their own words used against them at trial if that statement was somehow coerced. But the right, a violation of the right doesn't occur until the government tries to use that statement at trial. So that basically the Fifth Amendment only applies when the prohibited statement is sought to be introduced at trial. And because Chavez was never charged with a crime and they never tried to use the statements that Martinez got from him in the hospital against him criminally, the Supreme Court said that there was no Fifth Amendment violation. Okay. okay. Which kind of stands for the proposition, and that's why uh, Dershowitz's book is is so interesting, because it erodes that understanding of the Fifth Amendment as like a standalone right that everyone has to remain silent, and it basically says that popular understanding of the right isn't really what the right's all about. The right is only that you cannot be coerced to give a statement and then have that statement actually introduced against you at trial. But it's not a violation if you are coerced to give a statement and the statement is never used against you. So it's a, you know, it's a distinction that, you know, the layperson may not, you know, put much value to, but legally it's a pretty important distinction. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that definitely is an interesting way of thinking about it. And actually, when I meant this, from this area, I thought you meant, like, this area geographically. Oh, not this geographic area. No. <laughs> yeah, that's... I just wanted to make sure you... Because I said this area, I meant I thought you meant, like, Albany. Yeah. But when you brought that up and started talking about that case, I also started thinking a little bit about, like, the Fourth Amendment with that case. Mm-hmm. Would that also fall under that umbrella a little bit, or no? Um. Well, yeah, I mean... So, the... It, it may have some Fourth Amendment implications, but it certainly has some 14th Amendment implications. Okay. okay. Um, and, you know, one of the questions was, you know, would Chavez have a case against Martinez under the Fourth Amendment? You know, was it a violation of his due process rights? Yeah. And the Supreme Court did not decide that. Uh, they, Interesting. Yeah. The For whatever reason, it, it was only pled as a Fifth Amendment violation, not a 14th Amendment violation, which, you know, not to— you know, get too deep in the weeds, but when the Fifth Amendment was originally um, ratified, it only applied to the actions of the federal government, right? Okay. It did not apply to the states. It only became applicable to the states after the 14th Amendment was uh, 
ratified after the Civil War. Okay, and the the 14th Amendment, again, it's a very long amendment, but the uh, Section 1 to the 14th Amendment talks about how uh, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, um, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So the... 14th Amendment is basically putting limitations on state action, okay? And after the 14th Amendment was ratified, the Supreme Court started to say, okay, because of the 14th Amendment, now a lot of these other rights protected under the Bill of Rights and the first 10 amendments now apply to the states, whereas beforehand it was only prohibitions against federal government action. That kind of seems odd to me that they would only make, like, the Fifth Amendment at the time was made for the federal government is there a reason for that um well because you know the whole um the whole idea of federalism you know i mean which is still being debated today but you know at the time of the ratification of the constitution it was still you know foremost in everybody's minds that you know this new country was a republic and that states were still sovereign okay and that uh, the federal government you know, wasn't seen to be an all-encompassing rule giver for all the states. You know, the idea was that this was, you know, more than a confederation. This was a, a new nation, but that it was comprised of independent states, which had authority to make laws and authority to, you know, govern their citizens in the way that they see fit. So, you know, the original, um, you know, interpretation was that the, you know, the the Bill of Rights only pertain to federal government action. Now, that having been said, most of the states in their own state constitutions enacted similar provisions to the Bill of Rights. So what we call today the right against self-incrimination and the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution is basically the same language as Article I, Section 6 of the New York State Constitution. So, you know, there's multiple areas of law where you know, citizens' rights are sought to be protected, both okay. federally and state. So, you know, while the federal, um, while the Supreme Court didn't interpret the Fifth Amendment to apply to the states until after the enactment of the Fourteenth Amendment, citizens in various states had their own constitutions to rely on. You know, okay. to protect their rights. Um, yeah, so it's it's fascinating because, if, for for instance, in this area, right in yeah. in the state of New York. If somebody has uh, an encounter with the police and they give a statement and they're ultimately charged with a crime and the prosecutor wants to use the statement at trial, you know, the legal analysis is not only does the um, statement pass federal constitutional muster, but does does it pass state constitutional muster? You know, because sometimes... um, you know, the rights that are afforded to you under a state constitution are greater than those rights that are afforded to you under the federal constitution. Huh. So the, the federal constitution and the, and the federal bill of rights in New York is like, it's like the basement, right? The government yeah. has to, at the very least, abide by those laws and those restrictions. But they can add, you know, higher levels of protection for their citizens on a state basis. So whether it's Fourth Amendment search and seizure, uh, Fifth Amendment uh, right against self-incrimination, 
every prosecution, if it's a state prosecution, you got to look to both the federal constitution and the state constitution. Whereas if it's a federal cons- federal prosecution in U.S. district court, then you just really look at the federal constitution. The U.S. New York constitution is not really so applicable. Okay, yeah, because like once you started that, I was kind of thinking like, oh, okay, is it only eligible to be used in like fel- in like felony cases, or is it kind of just like yeah, the whole entire thing, or is it just depending on like what the state constitution says? Everything, because you know, um, there's the idea of dual sovereigns, right? The yeah. federal government and the state government, and federal government has prohibited certain conduct that can be charged as a crime in federal court, right? And then the New York State, through its legislature, has codified other crimes which are prosecuted in state court. So if you're a defendant in state court, you know, you've got both the U.S. Constitution and the New York State Constitution that you can look to to make arguments that the, you know, the police acted improperly or they wrongfully seized evidence or they wrongfully compelled a statement against you. Yeah. Whereas if you're a defendant in federal court, the New York State Constitution you know, ordinarily, or any state constitution is not really going to apply. It's going to be the constitution of the state of the United States. And other states have given more protections than the federal government. You know, so sometimes it's advantageous to be charged in a state court because you've got two constitutions you can look to and two uh, bodies of law to seek to, you know, suppress evidence. What ca- what states would those be? Well, basically, every every state has their own state constitution, right? Yeah. And uh, most states all have incorporated some form of the Bill of Rights in their own state constitution. And when they're interpreting their state constitution, the highest court of the state basically has the final word on what those protections are. And they have to make sure that they are at least as generous as the U.S. Constitution, but they can say it's more generous than the U.S. Constitution. So, you know, multi-jurisdictional litigation uh, can have different results in different states. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because now we're kind of just getting into like this whole entire dualism factor, which kind of just turns into like kind of this like whole entire topsy-turvy jurisprudence debate of like whether it's which one's more powerful, state or federal. Right. And it kind of just turns into something that sounds like a state's rights argument, but it just kind of turns into like something that might be confusing for somebody who doesn't, doesn't speak legalese. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. It's it's definitely confusing because again, this whole idea of dual sovereigns basically, um, you know, the federal government can enforce its laws and the state government can enforce its laws, and sometimes the conduct by a citizen violates both. Yeah. So the state can prosecute him, and the feds can prosecute him. You know. So you know, oftentimes if you're you know counseling a client and you know given a particular fact pattern, you know, they tell you what they did, what they did may very well constitute a, a crime under the state law and constitute a crime under the federal law. And the procedures in both courts are different and the sentencing, you know, parameters are different. So you've got to kind of think with two hats on, you know, like, yeah, you know, how, what's the likely outcome of, of, of this if it went into a state court? What's the likely outcome of this if it went into federal court? And then is there a possibility it could go to both courts? Because sometimes somebody can, you know, uh, the um, a case can be dismissed in state court for a particular reason. And, um, you know, the federal government can bring a, a prosecution on the same facts in federal court because if it violates federal law, 
It's not double jeopardy. Yeah, so, yeah, I was about to ask you, like, if you didn't bring that up, like, would that be double jeopardy? Because, like, that sounds like double jeopardy at face value. Yeah, well, it's it's really not. I mean, uh, it's it. There's a lot of nuances, and it, it's a complicated area of law. But as a general proposition, you know, double jeopardy prohibits being put in jeopardy for the same offense twice. Basically, yeah. like, you can't go to trial, be acquitted, and the government say. Uh, listen, we didn't really try hard enough the first time. We want to do it again, or we we're going to go find more witnesses and we're going to do it again. Yeah, that's prohibited. Okay, but um, you're not really being prosecuted twice if the allegation is the first prosecution was under a state um, criminal statute and the second prosecution is under a federal criminal statute, which you know aren't the same and there's two different sovereigns. So it is a it is a possibility. So it depends on, like, if you're in two different court cases in two different areas of jurisdiction, it's not double jeopardy then. Right, right. And, I mean, there are guidelines where, you know, if, if the federal government is prosecuting somebody, it would really be a waste of state resources to try and yeah. do the same thing. And, and contra, if the state's taking care of it, then the federal government is less likely to get involved. And there are some arguments to be made that, you know, there, there may be instances where it can't happen, but it's definitely something that, uh, is a possibility that needs to be considered. Yeah, and then since we're also on just the quick topic of um, double jeopardy, there's kind of just a question that's kind of just been bugging my mind about double jeopardy that I kind of just want to ask a lawyer for a long time I haven't really gotten a chance to. Yep. It has to do a little bit with the civil court system and the criminal. Because, mm-hmm. like, one big example of this, and to go back to, if you haven't noticed, one of my favorite court cases in history is the O.J. Simpson case. Mm-hmm. And... um which is why it was a huge thing for me to be able to get somebody like Alan Dershowitz to come on the show. Right. But um, there are some people who argue that if, like, O.J. Simpson won his criminal case. Right. But he was found liable in the civil court case afterwards. Right. There are some people who argue that that can be double jeopardy because mm-hmm. you're, you, won, you, you won in a criminal court, but then you're being retried. But this kind of also falls into the same thing of the state court versus the federal court where such a sense as two different courts you can still retry in a different way yeah well there's two things so so double jeopardy is applicable only to criminal charges yeah so in the oj simpson thing um you know he was acquitted in the criminal charge but that's not dispositive of of a civil action and the other yeah. thing to keep in mind is that the burden of proofs are drastically different in the criminal case the prosecutor has to prove um, his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay. Yeah. In a civil case, in most jurisdictions, the burden on the plaintiff is only a preponderance of the evidence. So the argument can be made that, listen, in the criminal case, he was acquitted, which means that the jury found that the people did not prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. That doesn't mean they didn't prove it by a preponderance of the evidence, which would have been enough in a civil case. Yeah just that they didn't meet that highest threshold of beyond a reasonable doubt. So, you know, the law allows for a civil case to proceed regardless of what the outcome was in a, in a criminal case. Okay. And kind of now going back to the self-incrimination stuff, mm-hmm. you're a criminal, you are a former criminal defense attorney. I'm a current criminal defense attorney. Oh, sorry, and, current. And former prosecutor. Yep. Sorry, switched those up. Yeah. Um, under what scenarios would you like recommend somebody if they were your client? Like, let's say I was your client. I mm-hmm. committed a crime. Under what scenario would you tell me to plead a fifth? Well, I, a- anytime that anything you had to say was going to put your, you know, legal interests, criminal legal interests in jeopardy. Um, 
unless I had assurances from the prosecutor that there was there was some kind of deal in in place. So, as an example, um, sometimes if the prosecutor isn't is investigating a, a crime, and you know your client may have some criminal liability, but it's not as much criminal liability as the prosecutor thinks, or as the prosecutor yeah. might end up charging uh, the client with. So sometimes you basically want to, before charges are brought, sit down with the prosecutor, with your client, and basically give them an offer of proof and say, okay, you know, this is what my client has to say. It, you know, yes, he did something that, you know, may be illegal, but it's not as bad as you think. It's not as widespread as you think. You know, his, um, you know, treatment should not be as, as severe as you're anticipating. And they call that a queen for a day, where basically the prosecutor um, gives you a memorandum saying that anything that you talk about today um, is not going to be used directly against you in any criminal case. Okay. Um, and you do that to try and facilitate plea bargain negotiations, right? I mean, if the idea is, okay, they have proof that the client committed a crime, um, Chances of success at trial aren't that great. We're trying to minimize the client's exposure, try and negotiate a plea to a lesser crime or negotiate the sentence um, or, you know, have them agree to, you know, prosecute one thing instead of 10 things. Sometimes it's advantageous to sit down with them. And it's basically like a contractual agreement where the prosecutor says, we won't use what you tell us today against you, you know, as direct evidence in trial. So that's an example of, a time I would consider having the client speak to um, speak to law enforcement. Sometimes the client has an absolute defense. You know, they may have done what the prosecutor thinks they did, but it was as you know they've got a defensive justification. You know, self defense. So it all depends. But there there are definitely occasions where you want your client's side of the story to come out. You just try and protect it so if things go wrong, you know, it can't come back at you. Okay. I still can't get over being a queen for a day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, but, I mean, like, it's kind of just seems like it also plays a part in, like, the deal-making of law cases and all this other stuff. I mean, definitely is an integral part of this all, of the whole entire criminal court system. Oh, the 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 court would courthouse would come grinding to a halt if it wasn't for plea bargaining, you know? Very few cases actually go to trial. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't have the, the statistics, but, you know, in, in New York, you know, it's it's not even 5%, I don't think, of cases that actually go to trial. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of cases a year that are dealt with in the criminal courts of New York. What happened to all the rest of those cases? Where did the 95% of them go? Well, they were plea resolved bargains. by a plea bargain, you yeah. know. And, um, you know, people you know, always decry plea bargains and, and, you know, they don't like deals and all that. But, you know, the reality is that that's the way most criminal cases are disposed of. Um, and it's advantageous, you know, usually for somebody who's charged with a crime, you know, they get to resolve the case and get some certainty and move on with their life usually. Um, and it's advantageous to the government because, you know, otherwise they'd be spending in, you know, unbelievable amount of time and money and there'd be huge backlogs and, you know, the system, again, would just grind to a halt. Yeah, because it seems like, especially in, like, 
whenever you turn on the news, it's kind of just like, okay, plea bargain. They offer them this deal in order to help them get a shorter sentence instead of a longer one, which they'd be more at risk of if they went to trial. But yeah, it just seems like that's all it is with courts today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, the trials and criminal cases are definitely, they're down since I've been practicing law. I mean, there was, when I first started my career um, in 1990 uh, at the DA's office in Albany County, our office was in the Albany County Courthouse. And that courthouse has, you know, at least five or six courtrooms, and they were all busy all the time. Now you go over to the Albany County Courthouse and not so much. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, the judges are still busy, but they're busy with things other than trials usually. Um, and it's just a, um, it's just a, you know, a fact of life in the criminal justice system. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely shocking. I know most people would be surprised if they heard, the, like, how inactive courts are today. Well, I, you know, I wouldn't say courts are inactive because, um, you know, in every criminal case, uh, you know, you may not yeah. see a lot of action in the courtroom, but motions are being decided, opinions are being written. You know, there's there's a lot of management of cases to keep the judges busy. It's just if you go to the courtroom, you're not going to see a lot uh, by way of trials uh, ordinarily. But again, you yeah. know, you know, some some judges are extremely busy trying cases. But, you know, statewide, I think, um, you know, going to trial is definitely uh, less and less the option of choice. And from a defendant's point of view, you know, I always think a jury trial is really the resolution of last resort, right? Because then you're really letting 12 people that you hardly know, right? I mean, you get a little bit of an opportunity to talk to them in, in jury selection, but not for long. Those 12 people are making a decision that is going to affect your client for the rest of his life. You know, so if you can craft a resolution that your client can live with, you know, more often than not, that's a better, better idea than to let 12 people you don't know make a decision. Yeah, kind of like 12 angry men. Yeah, yeah. I mean, jury <laughs> dynamics, I mean, that's a whole, I mean, I'm sure you could do a whole series of shows just on jury dynamics and, um, there are a lot of people who make their living, you know, being, uh, you know, jury consultants and, and think that they can, you know, give you insights into what sort of jurors you want on your case and, you know, how best to communicate to them. I don't, you know, I don't necessarily subscribe to that uh, whole, you know, wholeheartedly, but, you know, there, there is definitely uh, a growing industry in, in jury consulting and jury analysis and jury communications. Seems like there's a growing practice with everything in law. Yeah, it's it never it never ends. That's that's one of the interesting things about being a lawyer. I mean, the law, it's constantly evolving, right? I mean, it's the, it's the, uh, it's the cloth that holds you know society together. You yeah, know? and it's got to continually grow. And um, you know, uh, there's there's always new areas. There's new issues in society that need to be addressed and you know the way we live together you know in semi-harmony is by having laws that we all agree to and agree to abide by them and feel are fair and that are applied um, you know across the board uniformly to everyone I mean and if and if people don't have confidence in that that's when you know society really has a problem yeah kind of bring it back to the um, self-incrimination are there any other court cases that come up a lot with this. I mean, you already brought up Chavez. 
Are there any other like court cases that come up with this? Well, I think the the court case that's most associated with the Fifth Amendment in the public imagination is Miranda. Yeah. Right. Miranda versus Arizona, which was a 1966 case, and um, you know, everybody knows their Miranda warnings, right? I mean, you can't yeah. like. Everybody can probably recite them, too. Everybody can probably recite them. You can't watch TV, a t- uh, police procedural detective show, without hearing it at least a, a dozen times. And that was a very controversial case. And, and it, you know, in, in some respects, in some quarters, I think it's still a bit controversial. I mean, the idea that coercion, you know, the, the traditionally the idea behind the Fifth Amendment was to prevent coerced statements, right? And yeah. in the Miranda case... Um, there was no like overt traditional coercion. There was, you know, police interrogation. There was no, you know, physical torture or anything like that. But the Supreme Court said, listen, we we find that custodial questioning of a citizen by the police to be inherently coercive, right? Whether or not the third degree is employed, whether or not there's any physical contact with the defendant, just having a citizen be questioned by the police in a custodial situation is so coercive that we're not going to allow the results of that interview or that interrogation to be used at trial unless we're sure that it was the product of a free and voluntary decision on the part of the defendant to speak to the police. Yeah. So in order to, you know, guarantee that, we're going to require that police officers inform the defendant before questioning of their right to remain silent, of their right to have an attorney present, of their right to have an attorney appointed if they can't afford one. And the defendant has to be informed of those rights and has to affirmatively agree to waive those rights before any confession can be admitted into evidence. So that was a really dramatic departure from what people used to think of as coercion. You know, So now yeah. the very fact of custodial inter- in- interrogation is coercive and has to be proven to be voluntary um, by the reading of the Miranda warnings. Okay. You brought up the word custodial and um, investigation a little bit. Can you describe what the custodial is? Sure. Okay. So an important part about the Miranda warnings is the questioning has to be custodial. Okay. So what does custodial mean? And there's a whole, there's thousands of cases about what what does custody mean, right? Yeah. If I'm, say I'm suspect for a, a string of burglaries in my neighborhood, right? And yeah. I'm out grocery shopping and a police officer comes up to me and says, hey, Mike, you know, your name's come up in this investigation. We think you may be involved in the burglaries. Were you involved in the burglaries? And say, I say, yeah, you know, I, I was waiting for you to find me. Yes. If a court looks at that situation, they're probably going to say that's not custodial, right? Yeah. It's in the middle of a shopping uh you know, of a shopping trip in a public place. I'm not in handcuffs. I'm not in the back of a car. I'm not, you know, sitting in an interrogation room. I haven't been arrested. That's not custodial. So in a situation like that, the cops, you know, the police do not have to read me the Miranda warnings. It's only if I am in their custody, okay? And there are so many cases out there that talk about what constitutes custody. And in New York, there's a case called um, People versus Yuckle, Um that says you're in custody when a person innocent of any crime would feel that their freedom of movement has been restricted. Okay. Okay. So 
you know, if I am in custody or the functional equivalent of custody, you know, that my, that basically my freedom to leave the room has been overborne by the police, then they have to read me Miranda warnings. Okay. Okay. So, um, it's only custodial interrogation and it's only if the police intend to use the statement or the prosecutor intends to use the statement at trial. Okay. So okay. a lot of times you hear people say, you know, the police questioned me and they didn't give me my Miranda warnings. Well, unless they want to use the statement at trial, it's really kind of no, sometimes of no consequence. It may turn into something of consequence, but on, on face value, if they're not going to use the statement, then whether you got your Miranda warnings or not, doesn't matter. The other thing is they don't have to give you Miranda warnings for like uh, what they call pedigree information. A lot of times, you'll, especially in the context of like a DWI case, yeah, you know, a cop will pull you over, will start asking you questions about, you know, where you're coming from, where you're going, did you have anything to drink? And they don't give you the Miranda warnings before they ask those questions. The Supreme Court and the New York State Court of Appeals have all said that pedigree questioning by police is not custodial interrogation. That's not something that needs to be Mirandized beforehand. So, you know, everybody thinks that every time you talk to a police officer about an investigation, they've got to give you the Miranda warnings or else the police did something wrong. Yeah. It's not necessarily the case. Okay. I mean, yeah, I never would have thought of it that way. Yeah. Not many people actually think about the Miranda rights in that way. They always think that, like, every single time you're arrested or put in custody, you have to be read the rights. But I guess now I learned that that's not always true. Right. It's not always true. Not always true. Which is mind-blowing to me a little bit. And the the issue also is what happens if the police question you um, while you're in custody, you make an admission, and then they let you go. Yeah. And then they bring you back in at a later time and they give you your Miranda warnings and, um, you know, you decide you're not going to testify uh, or you do testify. Or you do give them information. You know, what's the effect of that earlier violation on a subsequent admission? And, you know, is was there a sufficient attenuation between the violation and the new new statement? I mean, every case is so fact specific. Um, there's so much litigation out there about you know, whether statements can be used, whether or not they violated the Fifth Amendment. That's why before every criminal trial in New York, a defendant is entitled to a pretrial hearing in front of a judge where the people have to prove that the statement was given voluntarily before it can ever be used um, at the trial in front of a jury. Okay. So we got enough time left for one question, Mm -hmm. for one more question. And the question I have for you, usually we like to end these off on kind of like a, Nice little fun question. Sure. Is there, you already brought up um, the Dershowitz book, Is There a Right to Remain Silent? Right. Is there a legal book that you recommend that people read? Um, well, there is, and I, unfortunately, I don't recall the name of the author. There's a, there's a book that's called um, The Bill of Rights, A User's Manual. Okay. Okay. And it um, is written by a woman who's uh, an attorney and also a journalist, uh, the Forward to the book was by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Okay. And it goes through the first 10 amendments and uh, also includes the 14th amendment. And it's, it's, it's a very good one volume synopsis. It gives the historical context of the bill of rights, 
it breaks down each um, each amendment as far as the language of the amendment and how the courts have interpreted that over time. Um, it's it's entertaining. It's um, uh, an easy read. It's not buried in legalese. It's meant for the general reader. And yeah. if somebody's interested in this topic, I would highly recommend it. Uh, it's called the Bill of Rights, a User's Manual. All right. Well, sounds interesting. I might have to go pick that up myself. Yeah. I think you'll, I think you'll find <laughs> it interesting. Yeah. Well, once again, Mike McDermott, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me.